Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, joining us from South Africa is Professor Tim Noakes. He has published over 750 scientific books and articles. After being left frustrated by a decline in his own personal health, Professor Noakes has made it his mission to reverse the global trend and redefine the dietary guidelines. Today, we're discussing his co-authored book with Marika Boros, Lore of Nutrition, Challenging Conventional Dietary Beliefs. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Noakes, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. Great privilege to be on your show. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Well, I'm I'm so pleased to have you here. And as we're going to discuss in in this show, I mean, what you've done for for everybody is is really amazing at your own personal cost. Um, so thank you so much for for the bravery that you've had facing all of this. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, before we go into the challenges that that you've had, just bringing this information to everybody, I want to go back um, about 40 years, you know, just reading about everything that you've been through in your trial, which we will talk about. Um, you know, to me, it just seems baffling that, that we're still facing, um, you know, this kind of um, uh I, I want to say prejudice. I'm not sure if that's even the right thing um, in in the scientific community. Um, although I, you know, I shouldn't be surprised after having done you know a lot of these shows. Um, and you know, I've I've talked to a lot of people that spoke at your conference, and I, and I'm aware, but I just am still taken aback. But let's go back about 40 years ago and what we were talking about in nutrition at that time, and and what it looked like then. Yes, indeed. Well, 40 years ago, well, I just finished my medical training and I started in training in cardiology and I was, I was a research cardiologist interested in how the heart functions. And I started in 1976 and that was the very year that the dietary guidelines were being discussed in the United States. And in 1977, the new dietary guidelines came out. And they were the first time that they said what you shouldn't be eating. In the past, they'd sort of advised this is good for you, but no one had ever said what was bad for you. And in 1977, out came the guidelines saying that saturated fat particularly and all animal fats are bad for you, that you must reduce their consumption and you must replace them with cereals and grains and you should have 6 to 11 servings of cereals or grains every day. Now, at the same time, I was a competitive runner, and the athletes were being told also we must eat lots of carbohydrate to, to fuel our muscles and make us better athletes. So I had this double coming from two sides, and what did I know? I mean, I was just a young doctor getting all this information from the gods, the anointed, the, the, the heroes in my mind. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to spread this word. So for the next 33 years or so, I spread the message that you should be eating lots of carbohydrate. Unfortunately for myself and, well, for most people in the world, it's a disaster because we became fat and obese and diabetic and sick and our athletic performance went down and we, we didn't feel good on it and we lost energy. 
And eventually I realized, fortunately, that I got it all wrong and I was prepared to say I got it wrong and to change my mind. And as you've indicated, that, that caused a lot of problems for me. Well, you know, I think it caused a lot of problems for everyone. But what's amazing um, is how far we've come in the, in that time. And I think it's people like you bringing that information forward. But, you know, growing up, um, I, I'm in Canada. We followed the Canada Food Guide. And that was actually, we had that that guide on our fridge and I was taught to follow it and what it was and and you know to eat so much of this and that every day and um you know it um probably I also have celiac disease so it didn't do me very well to follow that um and I don't think it did anybody very well and and I'm not sure that it's changed very much in in the last 40 years no it hasn't the guidelines have stayed the same and in fact the more that we're pushing the evidence that this has not been helpful for us and that it was never evidence-based. Let's just make the point that in 1977, when the dietary guidelines were changed, there was absolutely no evidence that converting to a low-fat diet would be healthy or conversely that the high-fat diet was going to cause heart disease. There was absolutely no evidence for that. So the idea was postulated and it was taken as gospel that this was, we were going to make ourselves healthier. We were going to become thinner. We we're going to have less heart disease and less diabetes. And what happened? The, the exact opposite. We, this is global tsunami of obesity and diabetes has been unleashed. And we now understand why it is. It's because if you've got a population that is tolerates carbohydrates poorly and you encourage them to eat more than about 35% carbohydrate, which is what the Americans were eating in the 1960s, and they were lean. So we would think that the average American does quite well, or Canadian does quite well, eating 35% of carbohydrate or less. But once you shoot above that mark, then the obesity-diabetes epidemic begins. So that, and, and the more the evidence has come forward that we've got this obesity-diabetes epidemic, caused by sugar and high carbohydrate diets, the more the, the blowback has come from both dietitians, from cardiologists, from medicine, from all these organizations that are funded by industry saying, no, there's no evidence for that. And that, that I think is the most frustrating because you would think that people would go outside, see how sick people are and say, gosh, we did something wrong. What could it have been? And the only conclusion you can draw it was those 1977 dietary guidelines. Well, you know, I, I think that there's a different opinion on on what's going on. You know, if somebody's obese, um, they must be lazy and they're not trying, and they're you know they must be mm. binge eating and they must be um, doing this and that. Um, and and it, instead of looking at our guidelines, we're actually blaming the people who it seems, from what you're saying, are the, are the victims of these guidelines. Exactly, and I'm beginning to realize more and more that obesity is a disease of hunger. And and what's happened is the food industry has produced foods that make us perpetually hungry, and and that's the key. And sugar is a key driver of that perpetual hunger, but carbohydrates in general also make you hungry. And so when we reverse the diets that we used to eat where we'd wake up in the morning and have a substantial cooked meal of real foods, 
and we replace it with cornflakes and orange juice and sugar and a little bit of fruit. That's a high carbohydrate, high sugar meal. And within three hours, you're hungry. So, and what do you look for? You look for the same foods you ate for breakfast. You look for the same, same high sugar foods. And so that this addictive eating became normal. And then we moved to eating six times a day because we've got to try and cope with this addiction and pretend that it's actually it's not an addiction. It's you've got to eat because you're hungry. But you're not really hungry. You're eating, as I've indicated, because of this addiction. And we, we really have to get back to realizing that we should be eating once or twice a day. And if we, once we start eating real foods with high nutrient value once or twice a day, then we start traversing the current problems. Well, yeah, it's interesting because those guidelines to eat six times a day as well, we know are are also fueling the metabolic syndrome. You know, I've done um, shows on on uh, um, intermittent fasting, one of them with Jason, Dr. Jason Fung. And, um, you know, we, we're now understanding that our insulin um, just keeps getting triggered the more we eat, as well as the more carbs and sugar we eat. But if we eat regularly, we're consistently triggered. And then, of course, we can't lose weight, and then we, we develop diabetes. <laughs> yes, precisely. And I think the point you're leading to is that obesity is, is a hormonally driven disease. It's not because you're eating too many calories and you're not exercising enough. That's the old model that you're gluttonous and lazy. And that's simply not true. It, once you get fat, you become progressively more lazy. But it's overeating that's, that's causing the gluttony, but it's overeating and storing of the fat. And you store fat when you eat carbohydrates with the food. Because as you've indicated, that raises your insulin, and the insulin locks the fat into the cells. So I repeatedly tell people, you don't lose weight because you eat less. You lose weight because your insulin comes down and you start oxidizing your fat tissue. You use the fuel in your fat cells as your fuel. And when you eat food, the fat is stored in the fat cells, but you simply burn it in the next 24 hours. And the key to losing weight is to become a fat-burning animal. And you can't do that as long as you're eating carbohydrates repeatedly. So when we're talking about carbohydrates, what, what do you mean by that? Because there's a few things that can go into that category. Yeah, I think that the, the ones that worry me are the cereals and grains and the starchy, starchy ones like like potatoes and that are full of starch and those are the ones that I cut out and we encourage people so we say no more rice potatoes, bread cereals and grains breakfast cereals those are the ones that you need to go immediately and then the the starchy vegetables are important the ones that grow below, below the surface and you're left ultimately with vegetables that grow above the surface, the leafy vegetables. Those are fine. They have a little bit of carbohydrate, but, but it's relatively little and you can't overeat on them. So the key then is to, is to cut out the rice and the potatoes and the pasta and the pizza and the bread and the liquid bread, which is <laughs> and and those sorts of things and replace them with healthy fats particularly, but also with more more protein and fat from, from animal produce. 
So and and so you, there's a lot of people that um, also think that we shouldn't be eating as much meat as we are. But you're talking about how we should be eating animals. So so what would a meal look like if somebody was to balance all of this properly? Yeah, I think I can best explain by what most of us eat to eat this low-carbohydrate diet. And I mentioned meat, but meat is not the key element of the diet. The diet is animal protein. You need, you need some animal protein because it is the, most, the best developed protein. Plant-based proteins are not quite as good as, as animal proteins. And you also need animal fats because you don't get the the best fats from from plant-based food. So that's why you have to have some meat in the diet. Then you've got fish, eggs. Eggs are one of the most nutrient-dense foods that you can possibly eat. Then I eat nuts and vegetables and dairy. That's kind of what I eat. And those are sort of the six foodstuffs. And if it doesn't fit in that group, those groups, then I'm not likely to eat it. But remember that I have type 2 diabetes, and so I'm restricted to what I can eat, very severely restricted in how much carbohydrate I can eat. But that is the diet, and once you understand the rules, it's very easy to eat delicious foods that fall under those categories. They're much more delicious than the stuff that they replace, and people have to, to understand that, that replacing pasta with fish or meat is... Is amazing because pasta's got no taste. That's why you have to add all the all the nonsense to it. Well, you know it, the 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 diet you're describing is how I eat now. But 20 years ago, when I went through my own health crisis, it, I, I felt I think the way most people feel when they have to cut out carbs that I couldn't do it. I I wanted bread and I craved it for for years really mm. after I cut it out. And the, the same with sugar. Um, and I I think sugar is um, something that will probably be a lifetime um, issue for me because if I have one little bit. You know, it's like an addict. I I need more mm-hmm. after I have that little bit. Um, is that something that that a lot of people experience as well? Oh, absolutely. I'm a full-on sugar addict. I haven't eaten sugar for seven years now, but you're quite right. If I was to be given chocolate, that's the one thing that I could still be addicted to. I couldn't taste sugar anymore. I just spit it out. But I could definitely eat chocolate. And a day of eating chocolate, and I'll get back to my addiction within although I haven't eaten chocolate for seven years. So you're quite right. Now, why don't people understand sugar addiction? It's because industry is aware that they have made us all sugar addicts. Like tobacco, the tobacco industry understood that they had addicted people to nicotine and other constituents of of cigarettes. The industry knows that they've addicted us, but if they were to admit that, they would be in all sorts of trouble. So that is why we keep getting these messages out in the media. No, no, uh, sugar is not addictive. It is addictive. And there's more than enough evidence for that. And there's also more than enough evidence that there are probably other carbohydrates that are equally addictive. And wheat, for example, could be one of them. Um, I want to talk about this more. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Professor Tim Noakes. We're discussing his book, Lore of Nutrition. We'll be back shortly. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. everybody welcome back today we're talking with professor tim noakes he's joining us from south africa so um professor noakes we got into a little bit about what the um what's happening with sugar addiction and and i find it interesting when you're when you're comparing that to cigarette smokes because we all know that that was a cover-up and there was a lot of court cases um you know that cigarettes were killing us now um you know to say that sugar is in that category that the companies know what they're doing i don't think that gets talked about very much can you tell us a little bit more well, I think we have to understand that the food industry is even more powerful than the cigarette industry. So, therefore, they're going to keep mess- this messaging hidden from the public for much longer. And, of course, they've had the experience of what the tobacco industry was able to do. So, they're, they're following that same game plan. And they will have scientists around the world to keep infiltrating the scientific literature with articles saying that, firstly, sugar is not damaging to your health. It doesn't cause obesity. It doesn't cause diabetes. And, of course, it's not addictive. And that confuses the science because if you now have what we call meta-analyses where you have studies that are done from outside industry, not funded by industry, and it's confused also with studies coming from industry, you find that the industry-backed studies will always find in favor of industry, whatever it is. 
So they confuse the issue, and then people, the experts, go and do what we call meta-analyses. They look at all the studies that there have ever been of sugar addiction or sugar-causing diabetes or sugar-causing obesity. And because the science has been infiltrated by these fake studies, when I say fake studies, they, they bias studies. The, the evidence doesn't come out, and it gets hidden, and it gets repeatedly hidden. And so that, that's what we face, is that the... The evidence, as it should be, that that sugar is addictive and that sugar is linked to diabetes and obesity, gets confused. And then scientists like myself who get up and say that there is no confusion, or Robert Lustig from San Francisco, we get targeted uh, for being quacks. How can you say that there's no science for behind it? And that's the way that certainly I was targeted as being a quack for suggesting these things. And that's how the, how the industry fights back. And, and unfortunately, they will have control for another 20 or 30 years before finally people accept that what I'm saying is true, that sugar is addictive and that it's a major driver of ill health and of obesity. Well, I think the the sugar part is coming around. I mean, we're very desperate right now because people are so sick with the the diabetes. Um, but but it's more in in uh, shows like this, in areas like this, where we're we're talking about it. But if you go to your doctor, um, you know, many diabetics are actually told they continue they can continue eating the way they are, and here's some medication. Uh, you know, and and uh, you talk about this mm. in your book as well that that type two diabetes can't be reversed. It's an illness that they now have and they're stuck with. Um, is that something that you're finding as well? Yes, indeed. And what's really exciting is a major a couple of major papers coming out of San Francisco from the Verta Health Company, and that's a company headed up by Sami Inkerman, who is a Finnish person who arrived in in California to make his fortune, which he did within a few years, and then he decided that he's not going to retire. He's going to do something for medicine in in the United States and the rest of the world. And he set up this company with the goal of reversing diabetes in 100 million people by the year 2025. And they've just published their first couple of papers in which they have used telemedicine to help people change behaviors. And as a person with type 2 diabetes, I know that I chose the disease and I can chose, choose to heal myself. And what they, what some Inkerman realized, he said that every minute people make decisions with diabetes and that the decisions they make on a minute to minute basis determine whether the disease continues or goes into reversal. So he set up this telemedicine company which allowed people with type 2 diabetes to be in direct contact on a daily basis with expert coaches who were doctors, exercise scientists, nutritionists, who all had the same story. You have to reduce your carbohydrate intake to less than 30 grams of carbohydrate per day, and you would then be allowed to reduce your medications. And what they showed that after one year, 60% of the people had reduced their medications and put the disease into remission. That doesn't mean they're cured. It means as long as they stay off the carbohydrates, they won't have the usual manifestations of type 2 diabetes. 
So we now know that type 2 diabetes is a disease that can be reversed or put into remission. And therefore, the treatment for the goal of treatment for diabetes for every single person in the United States of America or in my own country, the goal for treatment for every single diabetic is reversal of the disease. It's not maintenance of the state per square, it is reversal or remission. And I'm very proud to announce that after seven years on this low-carbohydrate diet, my diabetes is in complete remission. I have normal blood glucose control. And that's I'm probably the only person I know who took seven years to get there. Most people, if you're going to reverse it, it's one or two years. But I stuck at it fastidiously. No sugar, low carbohydrates, lots of exercise for seven years. And about three months ago, I finally got the results which I've been waiting for. So I even, so when we said 60% can reverse in one year, well, the answer is if you stick it out long enough, maybe we can get it up to 70 or 80% of remissions if people are prepared to stick it out for long enough. That, you know, that's amazing. I mean, we have a lot of people who, I mean, di- di- the future of diabetes is is kidney failure, losing a limb. Um, and, and to know that in one year, you can reverse that with just food, the same food that caused the illness and, and the same, you know, in the first place, which <laughs> definitely makes sense to me that if we've created this, we can reverse it as well. Yeah. And uh, let's hope now that we've, we've got to get to every diabetic in, in the country to realize that the choice is theirs now. <laughs> we know how to reverse this disease, or at least to put it into remission. And it's simply you'd reduce the carbohydrates. And we have to get that message to all the doctors as well. The problem is that the immediate fallout is for the pharmaceutical industry producing insulin. And I estimate that insulin dosaging for the average diabetic costs about ten million, sorry, ten, sorry, ten million, ten thousand dollars a year in the United States. And if we're going to reverse a hundred million diabetics, that's going to mean the bottom's going to fall out of the insulin industry. And they're not going to take that quietly as well, unfortunately. So there's going to be a big fight back from the pharmaceutical industry. Well, and the only yeah. way we can drive this is to drive individual patients. What motivated me, you may wonder? Well, my dad, I'm 68. At the age of 68, my dad was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and 10 years later, he was dead. And he suffered all the complications you described, strokes, heart attack. He lost both his limbs. And so he was bedridden for the last three years of his life. And it was just a most horrible death. And when I was diagnosed with diabetes, that was now eight, seven or eight years ago, I had the choice, you know, I've got 10 years to sort this thing out or I could also be dead. And fortunately, I did exactly what I was told not to do. I can remember in one fabulous debate, I was talking about low-carb diets and diabetes. One of the experts who will remain nameless said, well, Professor Noakes, I hope that you can find a good endocrinologist to sort out your diabetes. And the answer is, if I'd gone with a healthy, if I'd gone with a so-called good endocrinologist, I would be currently 40 kilograms heavier than I am. I'd be injecting insulin. I'd probably have peripheral vascular disease, 
I could have had a stroke already, but um, that's not going to happen because I did exactly what I wouldn't have been told to do by 99% of the world's endocrinologists. Well, I... Which is what most people do. I mean, they're um, they believe and trust their doctors, and and this is the the scary part because you know I know this just from my journey with Lyme diseases that um, I am my own advocate and I have to stand up for what I know is going on in my own body. And and when you when you take a diabetic to an endocrinologist and they tell them to uh, continue eating carbs, uh, sometimes to eat more, um, you know that to me is baffling because we know um, if they cut out carbs from what you're saying they, they're going to reverse this in a year and they won't need all that medication but there must be something with as you're saying the, the pharmaceutical industry wanting them on all this medication yeah I you know I give this this rather sorry picture of of medicine and remember that I did not practice medicine I I studied sports medicine and sports science and I was a researcher and I have the highest regard for acute medicine if I had broken a leg or had a burst appendicitis or a pneumonia there's only one place I'm going and that's the hospital and the doctors will be unbelievable and they'll save my life and that's, that's an amazing part of medicine the problem is the chronic manage- management of chronic disease is hopeless. And the reason is we don't understand that 80% of chronic disease, chronic uh, destructive diseases of so-called lifestyle, they're not. They're diseases of nutrition. And until you sort out the nutrition, you can't solve the problem. But we, teach, we don't teach medical students that. We teach medical students that the chronic diseases of lifestyle are treated with medications and we never ask the students to ask what is causing this. Why do people get high blood pressure when we know that the medications for high blood pressure are marginally effective? When we know the treatments for insulin are only margin, sorry, for diabetes are only marginally effective. But we don't ask the question, the pharmaceutical model doesn't work. We have to do something else. And so the frustration is to understand that nutrition is the key driver of these chronic diseases. And until you address the nutrition, we can't solve the problems. And in a nutshell, the problem is that in North America, 60% or more of the adult population have insulin resistance. And insulin resistance means an intolerance of carbohydrate. And you do not give people who are intolerant of anything that same substance. So if you're intolerant of carbohydrate, the only way we can help you is to reduce carbohydrates. Now, unfortunately, if I want to be the professor of endocrinology at, a, at an American hospital or in my own South African hospitals, the only way I can get it is to be funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry will only be interested in funding me if I promote their products. So as an endocrinologist, you have to say that insulin is the standard treatment for diabetes. Otherwise, you will never be funded by industry and your, your unit or department will not grow because it won't have the funding from industry. And that's the way that the industry has captured the medical schools. And that is why there will only be change when we break that bond, when medical schools become independent of the pharmaceutical industry 
for their survival. And I don't see how that can happen, unfortunately. Well, not not with the model that we have now, but it, it is a conflict of interest um, that your funding comes from somewhere and then that's what you're even teaching. Um, and, you know, the same with, with doctors. Um, but it, it, it just seems like um, we do need to separate that so that we um, can teach and learn and doctors can know what they need to know to make someone healthy. And, you know, there will be those people that choose not to, to change their diet, but we should be offering that as an option so that people um, know and understand because, you know, for, I know a lot of people, if it doesn't come from their doctor, they're not going to embrace that because they trust that information. Yeah. Now, you're absolutely correct. But I think that the one change agent is is the social media. And people are now watching on social media and discovering that people are curing their diabetes by going on these low-carbohydrate diets. And they're getting all the information they need. So if you go onto, for example, Diet Doctor on the on the website, you can get your management of diabetes or you go to diabetes.co.uk or even you go to our nutrition network, the Noak Foundation Nutrition Network. That That is the way we're going to teach both individuals and doctors how to manage disease in the future. The, the problem is that medicine is going to go bankrupt both in the United States and the rest of the world within the next 10 years and it's going to be bankrupted by diabetes. So something has to change. I'm, I'm very positive. I've just been in London talking there to a large low-carb conference. And the general practitioners and the movement amongst general practice in the United Kingdom is towards the low-carbohydrate diet for the management of diabetes. It's almost as if it's, if it's going to happen within months or certainly within a year or two that this will become the standard management. And the reason is simple the National Health Service is going bankrupt. And the quickest way they can start saving money is reducing their bills for insulin. And the quickest way they can do that is to tell people to stop eating carbohydrates. So there's a real movement for change in the United Kingdom. And I think hopefully that's going to burst the dam wall, so to speak, and that the rest of the world will just, they'll see what an amazing result has happened in Britain and they're going to realize that they're going to have to follow. Yeah, and I, I hope so. Um, we are going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Professor Tim Noakes. We're discussing his book, Lore of Nutrition. We'll be back shortly. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-484-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Everybody, welcome back. Today, um, joining me is Professor Tim Noakes. He's joining us all the way from Africa. Um, so, Professor Noakes, you know, we've talked a lot about this uh, uh, this diet, the the low carb, high fat diet that that you've been talking about for a long time. And you know, I think for a lot of people, they're like, "Oh yeah, I've heard this before. We've got all these diets going around that are similar to this." But when you started to talk about this, I don't think it was as easy for you can you tell us what happened right you know i think it's really important that the general public appreciate this is the original diet it was the first described in 1862 by william banting in london and it really swept across the world and it's reached the united states and it's in the greatest textbook of medicine that there ever has been and that's called the principles and practices of medicine written by sir william osler the astonishing Canadian-American doctor who is recognized as sort of the, one of the great fathers of medicine. And in his book, it says, the treatment of obesity is the low-carbohydrate banting diet. That's his textbook. And that's 1892. But unfortunately, we lost it after the Second World War. Suddenly, we, we changed everything. And then in the 1977, the new dietary guidelines came along. So it's not as if I discovered the diet at all. And if we then move forward, Atkins is probably the name that is, is best known in the 1970s. And his book, uh, the, the Atkins Diet, is one of the best diet books you will ever read. And, and what he, he grasped was that the, if you're insulin resistant and you eat a high carbohydrate diet, you'll get into trouble. But, of course, he was demonized because he was promoting a high-fat diet at the very time that the American Heart Association was saying the exact opposite, that you had to reduce your saturated fat intake. So he, unfortunately, got lost. And he, he was actually just coming back in the early 2000s. 
And then he unfortunately died, and people said, oh, he died because he had a heart attack, which wasn't true. And the Atkins diet sort of fell off. I think that the people who I really admire and who've made such a huge difference are the two journalists, Gary Taubes, originally from New York, who wrote the book Good Calories, Bad Calories, which is just an unbelievable book. Because he took the whole of nutrition, of hundreds of years of nutrition, and he compacted it into the book, and he said, well, this is what we know, and this is what we don't know, and this is the evidence that the low-carbohydrate diet works. And then in 2014, Nina Teichelt, also from New York, another investigative journalist, wrote the book, The Big Fat Surprise, in which she showed that there never was any evidence for this low-fat diet being healthy and preventing heart disease. And I think those two books, plus research that Atkins had funded himself and undertaken by three guys, Westman, Finney, and Zolik, they started the first randomized controlled trials of the high-fat diet and showed that it was at least as effective as the low-fat diet, so that the high-fat diet was at least as effective and in many cases more effective than the low-fat diet. And that allowed people like myself to come along and say, well, actually, there is evidence that the low-carb diet works. There is evidence that banting was right, which we wouldn't have been able to do 20 years ago or 30 years ago when Atkins was preaching. He didn't have the evidence. We now have the evidence, and every day it accumulates more. And that, in, in a sense, is what saved me from from being demonized was I could actually say there is evidence and you can't ignore the evidence forever. Well, you were you were more than demonized the way Atkins was. You know, you actually got taken to court over this. They were challenging you and saying that you were um, going to cost patients their lives and essentially committing murder. Which, as we've discussed, is actually the opposite. I mean, the high high carb, high sugar diets is actually what's killing people. But what happened yeah. with that trial? Like, like it, it just seems baffling to me that that even happened. Um, but obviously. That at, at the time, which actually wasn't that long ago, um, that that was something that South Africa felt they had to do. Well, it all began about four years ago when I tweeted something, and but we subsequently and we I then went through a trial which lasted twenty eight days in court, and I presented evidence for nine and a half days, nine days, and I was cross examined for for three and a half days, so total five and a half days testimony. 6,000 pages of scientific argument and evidence and three and a half days of cross-examination and then we had three expert witnesses including Nina Tasha, she flew all the way from New York. So we had 12 days of testimony and during the trial what we decided to do was that because we knew it was a fallacious charge, there was no real charge, we were going to use this to present the evidence for the low-carb argument. And we did that so effectively that the prosecution could not find any fault in what we said. And that will be the ultimate legacy of the trial, is that on record we have all the evidence supporting the low-carbohydrate diet and its benefits for both children and adults. During the process of this four-year process, we discovered that the reason why I'd been charged was because of a collusion between the dietitians of South Africa and my governing body, the Health Professional Council of South Africa. So even before I had sent out a tweet, 
there was communication between the Dietitians Association of South Africa and the Health Professional Council that NAICS was a problem because he had written a book called The Real Meal Revolution and the public were now listening to him and reading the book and they weren't listening to the dietitians. And that made the dietitians very angry. So what began as an, a, an argument with a disgruntled dietitian was turned into a supposed tweet that was dangerous because I said something about the low-carb diet is the diet that you should wean children onto. The fact that those are the South African dietary guidelines, and in fact they are the global dietary guidelines, kind of got lost in the, in the making of the charge. But we went through 28 days, and the original decision was 10-0 to me. I won on all counts. The Health Professional Council appealed their own decision. They formed another committee. They put us through another three days of trial, and three months later, they still haven't given us a decision, although they promised us the decision eight weeks ago. So we are still waiting for the final decision from the Health Professional Council. And so we don't know what the final outcome will be, but all I do know is that this was a tale of unintended consequences because this brought the low-carb diet right to the forefront of the global uh, awareness. The world is now aware that the, the low-carb diet has been challenged or it has challenged the world. It's gone through this trial. It was not found to be pseudo-scientific, it is found to be based on hard science, and that is, it's a major step forward for, for the low-carbohydrate diet. Well, I, I, I agree with you, and I, I want to actually thank you for doing that, because I know that there was a certain point where you could have actually uh, stepped back and, and left the, um, the medical community, um, your licensing, so that you wouldn't have been put on trial because you're licensed as a doctor. And you decided not to do that so that this word could get out there, and I know that that was at a cost to yourself. And, and I think it was important that you did that, so I'm glad that you're sharing your, this information and you're sharing what happened in your book so that people can realize that we do have to be our own advocates and we have to look at the information that's there you know it, just because our doctors are saying you're supposed to eat cereals and grains it doesn't mean that that that's the way it should be because the evidence as you're saying is is different yeah, precisely. I think that we all experienced one. That was my great guru was a chap called George Sheehan, a cardiologist from New Jersey, who who really taught me to write and to think and and to run. And he always said, you know, we're an experiment of one. And, and that was the reality in the 70s. We didn't know. We just had to go and find out for ourselves. And we've kind of lost that. We've become too dependent on everyone's opinion and what they tell us. But ultimately, your body will tell you what works for it and what doesn't work. But you have to have the courage to change and experiment and not just continue doing, doing stuff that's harming you without you realizing it. So you're quite right. People need to experiment with their own health because what you learn is you've only got one body and you've only got one life and it would be a disaster to arrive at the end of the life and say, gosh, I got it wrong. If only I'd eaten more fat and less carbohydrate, I would have had a much healthier life. Well, you know, I, I actually think that has happened. Um, last year, a friend of mine lost his father to um, type 2 diabetes, to kidney failure. 
you know, and I, and I, I think that realization that it's so close to us, um, that it is still happening just because, you know, you and I have this information, it does need to change. And I hope that that change in Britain um, helps to change the rest of the the world because you know the, the smaller countries and I know Canada we we often will follow what America does and what the other countries do um, and uh, that I think is what happened with the high carbohydrate information so I, I really hope that this changes because we will save a lot of lives exactly so and and your what you're doing and getting the message out to the public it's it's terribly terribly important so thank yeah. you for for doing that as well um, so if there's somebody listening um, who wants to get started changing their life, where would you recommend that, what would you recommend that they do? Well, obviously they could read any of the books that I've written, but there are many, many books on the low-carb or paleo diet. There's some remarkable websites, and I always, I've already mentioned the Diet Doctor website, Andreas Jenfeldt in Stockholm who really started this out long before I went into low carbs and he developed this website and I think it's just a treasure trove of information there and that will lead you to everywhere else and the reality is that all this information is freely available and that's, that's one of the ironies is we are doing this for free we're not asking anyone for anything we just give this information out for free and that's also one of the reasons why the it's irreversible. This this tidal wave of change is irreversible because the information is there, it's free freely available. So yeah. I think that's read some books. The the book that we made that changed South Africa was called The Real Meal Revolution and that's available on Amazon and what's its strength? It's got some fabulous recipes. And it's food. If you start eating that food, you'll think, my gosh, I'm going to put on weight with this diet because the food is so delicious. But the reality is once you cut the carbohydrates and the sugars, you eat less and so you're not hungry and so you lose weight as a consequence. So that's a book. And then for those who are seriously interested in the science, the Good Calories, Bad Calories, the book we mentioned by Gary Taubes and Nina Teichel's book, Big Fat Surprise, are just two of the most extraordinary books that have been written in medicine in the last 10 years. That's, that's how good they are. Mm-hmm. And of course, the irony is they were not written by doctors. They were written by investigative journalists who are incredibly clever, incredibly good writers, and, and very, very thorough, very thorough in their research. Well, I did interview um, Nina on this show on March 2nd, so that's a good place to start as well. Um, you know, and that, I think that was the first time that I was baffled that talking about fats was a, a big secret because she talked about how doors were shutting when she was talking, trying to bring this information forward. Um, and, and I think that's really important for people to realize that, that there is actually a cover-up that's happened, um, which was a, a shock to me over food. You know, I've, I've seen it in other things, but to know that that's happened here, especially with you being brought to court over it, um, you know, there is definitely something going on here. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and of course, it extends into, into medicine and the, the prescription of drugs to reduce your risk of heart attack and lower your cholesterol. And, and what, what we know now is this is low-fat diets with lots of cholesterol-lowering drugs has purely pushed us into the diabetes epidemic because 
if you're insulin resistant and you cut the fat out of the diet and you eat a high carbohydrate diet, the only outcome is type 2 diabetes as we described. So it's very easy to see how this idea that we should cut fat in the diet and we should eat a low fat diet is a direct cause of the obesity diabetes epidemic. Mm-hmm. And to reverse it, it's going to be difficult. We, we have to change the, the food environment completely, but it's happening all the time. And I see, for example, in Asia, the, the eating of rice has dropped 60% in, since 1960. I mean, that's astonishing. And people are moving towards meat and vegetables and away from rice as the traditional foods. And in the United States, the processed food sales are, are certainly falling. So it's happening all over the world. Unfortunately, it's it's the wealthier people who are well-educated who can do it and perhaps afford it. And mm-hmm. it's the poorest people who carry the burden of the problem. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could speak with you um, more. I think I need a longer show because I think I say that every week. But <laughs> unfortunately, I only get an hour. Um, so is there any place, because there's way more to, to know about what happened to you as well as this diet. Is there any place that people can get more information about you or your book? Yeah, indeed. Obviously, to read the book, and unfortunately, I've indicated the book's really difficult to get hold of because we didn't have the international rights, and they weren't really pushed. So we've got the international rights back, so the book will be more available in the future through Amazon and hopefully through the decent bookshops in Canada and the United States. The We do have a foundation, the Noakes Foundation, and that will tell you a little bit about what we do, our philanthropy. And in addition, what we do with our nutrition network, which is educating doctors on how to prescribe this diet. And it also talks a little bit about our Eat Better South Africa campaign, which is a campaign to allow the poorest people, to educate the poorest people in South Africa to eat a diet that will make them healthy. Mm. And we've shown that for $2 a day, $2 American dollars a day, people can eat reasonably good foods and become much healthier than spending that same amount of money on the high carbohydrate, high sugar foods that they're currently eating. So, oh, so I would encourage people to A, read all, all my books if they'd like to, <laughs> and then go to the Noakes Foundation website to, to see what we do as a foundation. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my great privilege. Thank you, Rebecca. I've really enjoyed every second of it. Today we were talking with Professor Tim Noakes. He joined us from South Africa. We were discussing his book, Lore of Nutrition, which is co-authored with Marika Boros. Um, The book is available on Amazon. I've seen it on Amazon.com and Amazon.ca. I just want to thank everybody for listening. I hope that today's show is going to help you repair a crack in your own health care. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 